Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. You're listening to Outlaws and Gunslingers. The only podcast covering all of America's infamous criminals. From the Wild West to the Mafia, all the way up to the ruthless street gangs of today. Brought to you exclusively by the Creative Control Network. Here are your hosts, the Mouthy Michiganders, Bang and Dang. Welcome back to Outlaws and Gunslingers with your host, Bang and Dang. And we are on to part two of the Oklahoma City bombing. In part one, if you missed it, go back and listen to it. We profiled both of the uh, main Restyled and profiled. perpetrators of the attack, Timothy McVeigh and Terry Nichols, from their childhood all the way up into uh, when they met and decided on attacking and making their bomb. So that was all a part one. Part two is going to be all about the... Getting together the materials, the making of the bomb, the planning of where they're going to eventually hit, and uh, the bombing and casualties of uh, <clears throat> said bombing. This one's not going to be a very fun episode. What are you going to do, right? Very dark, very heavy, obviously, for obvious reasons. But, you know, you got to uh, gotta learn history. Don't repeat it, though. Don't repeat it, though. Don't repeat it. So before we, uh, when we left off on episode one, or uh, part one, Terry and uh, Timothy were deciding, hey, we're going to make a bomb. And then they uh, had to plan out who they, who they wanted to hit, what they wanted to hit before uh, deciding on attacking a building. Right. McVeigh had contemplated assassinated Attorney General Janet Reno, mm. FBI sniper Lon Hirochi. Remember him? Horiuchi, right who had become infamous among extremists because of his participation in the Ruby Ridge and Waco sieges. And others, they considered. And others. others. (laughs) McVeigh claimed he sometimes regretted not carrying out an assassination campaign. He should have. Yeah, he probably should have. He initially intended to destroy only a federal... (laughs) (laughs) If he was going to do either or, he probably should have. Yeah, I mean, one or 200 and something. Right. You know, uh, he initially intended to destroy only a federal building, but he later decided that his message would be more powerful if many people were killed in the bombing. No. (sighs) McVeigh's criterion for attack sites was that that the target should house at least two of the three federal law enforcement agencies, the ATF, FBI, or the DEA. He regarded he regarded the presence of additional law enforcement agencies such as Secret Service or the Marshals Service as a bonus. Dang. Yeah, big, so how, this guy, I mean. How big of a service is a Secret Service, though? Uh, Pretty big. Is it? Kind of like the FBI itself? CIA itself? Do you know how many Secret Service agents there are? I'm sure there's thousands, right? <laughs> yeah. Tens of thousands. It's got to be. Right? So who gets the Secret Service? Just ex-presidents and vice-presidents, right? Oh, there's Secret Service at all the Congress, embi- Senate, and all that. There's Secret Service at all the embassies and everything. Secret Service just shot and killed a man the other day for trying to attack the Peruvian embassy in Washington. No, sir. And these guys are men in black, huh? Pretty much. <laughs> a resident of Kingsman, Arizona, McVeigh considered targets in Missouri, Arizona, 
Texas and Arkansas. He said in his authorized biography that he wanted to minimize non-governmental casualties. Okay. So he ruled out Simmons Tower, a 40-story building in Little Rock, Arkansas, because the florist shop occupied space <laughs> on the ground floor. Oh, oh, please don't ruin the florist shop. Heaven forbid, ruin the floor shop. Right. Go ahead and take out that daycare. <laughs> December 1994, McVeigh and Fortier visited Oklahoma City to inspect McVeigh's target, the Alfred P. Murrah Federal Building. The nine-story building built in 1977 was named for a federal judge, housed 14 federal agencies, including the DEA, ATF, Social Security Administration, ooh, and recruiting offices for the Army and Marine Corps. Jeez. Oh, dang, that would have been it. I would assume that's why he chose it. Well, McVeigh chose the Murrah building because he expected its glass front to shatter under the impact of the blast. Whoops, sorry. He also believed that its adjacent large open parking lot across the street might absorb and dissipate some of the force and protect the occupants of nearby non-federal buildings. Okay. And, oh, he's such a, he's such a thoughtful right. guy, isn't he? Right. In addition, McVeigh believed that the open space around the building would provide better photo opportunities for, uh, propaganda purposes. Ah. Uh, he was right because they got some propaganda out of them. He did. He planned the attack for April 19th, 19, 1995 to coincide with not only the second anniversary of Waco, but also the 220th anniversary of the battles of Lexington and Concord during the American Revolution. Oh, look at this guy. Why? History boof. It's the official start of the war. The first military engagements of the American. Okay. So, man, that's why he was hoping to uh, repeat and start another war or something. Is that what's going on there? Yeah, like his version of revolution. Another revolution, yeah. McVeigh or Nichols purchased or stole the materials they needed to manufacture the bomb, stored them in a rented shed and multiple sheds. In August 1994, McVeigh obtained nine binary explosive kind sticks from gun collector Roger E. Moore, and with Nichols ignited the devices outside Nichols' home in Harrington, Kansas. September 30th, 1994, Nichols bought 40 50-pound bags of ammonium nitrate fertilizer from mid-Kansas Coop. In McPherson, Kansas, enough to fertilize 12 and a half acres of farmland at a rate of 160 pounds of nitrogen per acre, an amount commonly used for corn. Nichols bought an additional 50-pound bag on October 18, 1994. McVeigh approached Fortier and asked him to assist with the bombing project. But Fortier was like, I want to get high. <laughs> no thanks. <laughs> Well, after that, McVeigh and Nichols robbed Moore in his home of 60000 worth of guns, gold, silver, and jewels, transporting the property in the victim's van. Uh-oh. McVeigh wrote, a, wrote Moore a letter in which he claimed that the government agents has commit, had committed the robbery. Oh. Items stolen from Moore were later found in Nichols' home and in a storage shed he had rented. Oh, jeez. In October of 94, McVeigh showed Michael and his wife, Lori Fortier, a diagram he had drawn of the bomb he wanted to build. McVeigh planned to construct a bomb containing more than 5,000 pounds of ammonium nitrate fertilizer mixed with about 1,200 pounds of liquid, nit- liquid nit- nitromethane Ooh. and 350 pounds of Tobex. Oh, man. Jeez, dude. He was... It's a freaking bomb there, buddy. Dude, it took off a third of the building and he was parked outside on the street. Right. Just imagine if he was like inside the and, building. Yeah. It took the whole thing down. Including the weight of the 1655 U.S. gallon drums in which the explosive mixture was to be packed. The bomb would have a combined weight of about 7,000 pounds. McVeigh originally intended to use hydrazine rocket fuel, but it proved too expensive. Yeah, shit's expensive. During the Chief Auto Parts Nationals, 
a round of NHRA Winston Drag Racing Series at the Texas Motorplex, McVeigh posed as a motorcycle racer and attempted to purchase 55 United States gallons uh, drums of nitromethane on the pretext that he and some of his bikers needed it for fuel for racing. <laughs> That's a lot. But there were no nitromethane-powered motorcycles at this meeting. And he did not have an NHRA competitor's license. Yeah, I would think I mean, that would on. be important. Why would he even try that? Uh, you got to do what you got to do, I guess. Representative Steve Lasour refused to sell to him because he was suspicious, suspicious of McVeigh's actions and attitudes. And he would have been right. But sales representative Tim Chambers sold him three barrels. Oh, jeez. Chambers questioned the purchase of three barrels when typically only one to five gallons of nitromethane, he noted, would be purchased by a top fuel Harley rider. And the class was not even raced that weekend. Oh, but he still sold it. Yeah. Whatever. McVeigh rented a storage space in which he stockpiled seven crates of 18-inch long Tovex sausages, uh. 80 spools of shock tube, and 500 electric blasting caps, which he and Nichols had stolen from a Martin Marietta Aggregates quarry in Marion, Kansas. Okay. How are they stealing this stuff? All right. That's what I like to know. He decided not to steal any of the 40,000 pounds of ANFO, uh, ammonium nitrate fuel oil, he found at the scene. As he did not believe it was powerful enough, he did obtain 17 bags of ammo from another source for use in the bomb, though. McVeigh made a prototype. I know that makes no sense. McVeigh made a prototype bomb that was detonated in the desert to avoid detection. Think about the people as if they were stormtroopers in Star Wars. They may be individually innocent, but they are guilty because they work for the evil empire. McVeigh reflected on the deaths of victims in the bombing. <laughs> so you want, you want to think of them as stormtroopers, I guess? Sure. And guess. Gonna take him out. Later, speaking about the military mindset with which he went about the preparations, he said, You learn how to handle killing in the military. I face the consequences, but you learn to accept it. He compared his actions to the atomic bombings of Hiroshima and Nagasaki rather than the attack on Pearl Harbor, reasoning it was necessary to prevent more lives from being lost. On April 14, 95, McVeigh paid for a hotel room at the Dreamland Motel in Junction City, Kansas. Next day, rented a 1993 Ford F700 truck from Ryder under the name Robert D. Kling, an alias he adopted because he knew an army soldier named Kling, with whom he shared physical characteristics and because it reminded him of the Klingon, Klingon warriors of Star Trek. And this dude loves some Star Trek and Star Wars. That's so nerd. April 16th, 1995, he and Nichols drove to Oklahoma City where he parked a getaway car, a yellow 1977 Murky Marquis. Several blocks from the Murrah building, the nearby Regency Towers apartment's lobby security camera recorded images of Nichols' blue 1984 GMC pickup on 18th, I mean 16th of April. After removing the car's license plate, he left a note covering the vehicle identification number, and it said, Not abandoned. Please do not tow. We'll move by April 23rd. Needs battery and a cable. Both men then returned to Kansas. I don't think that's going to work. It might. I, I might have. <laughs> On April 17th through the 18th in 95, McVeigh and Nichols removed the bomb supplies from their storage unit in Harrington, Kansas, where Nichols lived, and loaded them into the Ryder rental truck. They then drove to Gary Lake State Park, where they nailed boards onto the floor of the truck to hold the 13 barrels in place and mixed the chemicals using plastic buckets and a bathroom scale. A bathroom scale, huh? Each filled barrel weighed nearly 500 pounds. Wow. McVeigh added more explosives to the driver's side of the cargo bay, which he could ignite killing himself in the process at close range with his Glock 21 pistol in case the primary fuses failed. Oh, wow. Uh, during McVeigh's trial, Lori Fortier stated that McVeigh claimed to have arranged the barrels in order to form a shaped charge. This was achieved by tamping 
which is placing material against explosives opposite the target of the explosion on the aluminum side panel of the truck with bags of ammonium nitrate fertilizer to direct blast laterally towards the building. That's what they wanted. Mm -hmm. Specifically, McVeigh arranged the barrels in the shape of a backwards J. He later said that for pure destructive power. He later said that for pure destructive power, he would have to put the barrels on the side of the cargo bay closest to the Murrah building. However, However. such an unevenly distributed 7,000-pound load might make an axle break, flip the truck over, or at least cause it to lean to one side, which could have been uh, drawn attention to him. (laughs) Obviously, you're riding down the road like this. Right. Take a look at that guy. All or most of the barrels of Ampho contain metal cylinders of citylene intended to increase the fireball and the brysense of the explosion. I am not an explosion expert, apparently. Uh, McVeigh then added a dual-fuels ignition system accessible from the truck's front cab. He drilled two holes in the cab of the truck under the seat, while two holes were also drilled in the body of the truck. One green cannon fuse was run through each hole into the cab. These time-delayed fuses led from the cab through the plastic fish tank tubing conduit to two sets of non-electrical blasting caps, which would ignite around 350 pounds of the high-grade explosives that McVeigh stole from a rock quarry. Okay. Where did he learn all this? They weren't doing right. this stuff in the military. The tubing was painted yellow to blend in with the truck's livery and duct-taped in the place to the wall and make it harder to uh, disable by yanking from the outside. The fuses were set up to initiate through shock tubes of 350 pounds of Tovex Blastrite gel sausages, which would in turn set off the configuration of barrels. Of the 13 filled barrels, nine contained ammonium nitrate and nit- nitromethane, and four contained a mixture of fertilizer and about four U.S. gallons of diesel. Additional materials and tools used for manufacturing the bomb were left in the truck to be destroyed in the blast, of course. After finishing the truck bomb, the two men separated. Nichols returned home to Harrington, and McVeigh traveled with the truck to Junction City. Can you imagine him? All right. Traveling on that death trap? The bomb cost about $5,000 to make. Jeez. Uh, McVeigh's original plan had been to detonate the bomb at 11 a.m., but at dawn on April 19th, 95, he decided instead to destroy the building at 9 a.m. As he drove toward the Murrah Federal Building and the rider truck, McVeigh t- carried with him an envelope, envelope, envelope containing pages from the Turner Diaries, a fictional account of white supremacists who ignite a revolution by blowing up the FBI headquarters at 9.15 one morning using a truck bomb. McVeigh wore a printed T-shirt with Sick Semper Tyrannus, thus always two tyrants. Hmm. What, according to legend, Brutus said as... Oh, okay. What, according to legend, Brutus said as he assassinated Julius Caesar Uh and is also claimed to have been shouted by John Wilkes Booth. Oh, right. Immediately after uh, he assassinated Lincoln. Right. And the Tree of Liberty must be refreshed from time to time with the blood of patriots and tyrants from Thomas Jefferson. Oh. I mean, what you can do, right? Must yeah. be refreshed time to time. Everybody's got to shed blood, pretty much. That's what old Tommy Jeffy said. He also carried an envelope full of revolutionary materials that included a bumper sticker with the slogan falsely attributed to Je- Thomas Jefferson. And it said, when the government fears the people, there is liberty. When the people fear the government, there is tyranny. Underneath, McVeigh had written, maybe now there will be liberty. Oh, good for him. With a hand-copied quote by John Locke, asserting that a man has a right to kill someone who takes away his liberty. Does a man have a right to kill anybody? I don't think so. I don't think so. McVeigh entered Oklahoma City at 8.50 a.m. At 8.57, the Regency Towers Apartments lobby security camera that had recorded Nichols' pickup truck three days earlier recorded the rider truck heading towards the federal building. At the same moment, McVeigh lit the five-minute fuse. Three minutes later, still a block away, he lit the two-minute fuse. 
Dang, he's still driving? Mm-hmm. He parked the rider truck in a drop-off zone situated under the building's daycare center. Oh, jeez. <sighs> Exited and locked the truck. As he headed to his getaway vehicle, he dropped the keys to a truck to the truck a few blocks away. Did he know there was a daycare? If he did, no. Because he was doing everything he can to avoid... A f- from a freaking flower shop. Right. 9.02 a.m. The rider truck containing over 4,800 pounds, 4, pounds of ammonium nitrate fertilizer, nitromethane, and diesel fuel mixture detonated in front of the north side of the nine-story Alfred P. Murrah building. 168 people were killed. Hundreds more injured. One-third of the building was destroyed by the explosion, which created a 30-foot-wide, 8-foot-deep crater on the northwest 5th Street next to the building. I bet it did. The blast destroyed or damaged 324 buildings within a four-block radius. Uh, So much for his theory of not destroying buildings around, right? Right. Shattered glass in 258 buildings nearby. Jeez. Jeez, oh, Pete. The broken glass alone accounted for 5% of the death total. Wow. Sure. And 69% of the injuries outside the Murrah Federal Building. The blast destroyed or burned 86 cars around the site. The destruction of the buildings left several hundred people homeless and shut down a number of offices in downtown OKC. I'm sure it did. The explosion was estimated to have caused at least $652 million worth of damage Dang. then. Dang. Then, which is billion, two, three billion nowadays. Dang. The effects of the blast were equivalent to over 5,000 pounds of TNT. It could be heard and felt up to 55 miles. Jeez. Seismometers at the... Seismometers? Right. At the Omniplex Science Museum in Oklahoma City, 4.3 miles away, and Norman, Oklahoma, 16 miles away, recorded the blast as measuring approximately 3.0 on a Richter. Wow. Real shaky. That's a little tiny, right? The collapse of the northern half of the building took roughly seven seconds. As the truck exploded, it first destroyed the column next to it, designated as G20, and shattered the entire glass facade of the building. Facade. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Mm-hmm. G20 must be like... A structural uh, designation? Has to be. Uh, the shockwave of the explosion forced the lower floors upwards. Oh, geez. Before the fourth and fifth floors collapsed onto the third floor. Of course. Which housed a transfer beam that ran the length of the building and was being supported by four pillars below and was supporting the pillars that hold the upper floors. Oh, yeah. The added weight meant the third floor gave away along the transfer beam, which in turn caused the collapse of the building. All right. Jeez, Jeez OP. Initially, the FBI had three hypotheses about responsibility for the bombing. International terrorists was one. Possibly the same group that had carried out the World Trade Center bombing. Could have been a drug cartel, they thought, carrying out an act of vengeance against DA agents in the building's DEA office. And anti-government radicals attempting to state a rebellion against the federal government. Well, ding, ding, ding. <laughs> Look at you guys. Well... McVeigh was arrested within 90 minutes of the explosion as he was traveling north on Interstate 35 near Perry in Noble County, County, Oklahoma. Oklahoma State Trooper Charlie Hanger stopped McVeigh for driving his yellow 1977 Mercury Marquis without a license plate. What an idiot! And arrested him for having a concealed weapon. What an idiot! Wow. For his home address, McVeigh falsely claimed he resided at Terry Nichols' brother's James's house in Michigan. After booking McVeigh to jail, Trooper Hanger searched his patrol car and found a business card which had been concealed by McVeigh after being handcuffed. Uh-oh. Written on the back of the card, which was from a Wisconsin military surplus store, were the words TNT at $5 a stick. Need oh, more. Oh, no. The card was later used as evidence during his trial. Oh, jeez. What an idiot. Mm. I mean, this continues on with the old trend we got going on here. These guys are freaking morons when it comes to 
the end of it, trying to get away. Trying to get away, dude. I mean, like, what the hell? Wouldn't that be the first thing you do is put, put the license, license plate, plate back on? You dumb son of a bitch. Or throw your gun away, at least. And why would you be driving in a yellow Grand Marquis? That's like right. biggest sore thumb in the world. Might as well be red. Jeez. While investigating the VIN number on the axle of the truck using an explosion and the remnants of the license plate, federal agents were able to link the truck to a, to a specific rider rental agency in Junction City in Kansas. Using a sketch created with the assistance of Eldon Elliott, owner of the agency, the agents were able to implicate McVeigh in the bombing. McVeigh was also identified by Leah McGowan of the Dreamland Motel, who remembered him parking a large yellow rider truck in the lot. McVeigh had signed... Why go to a hotel? You got a big-ass truck. Well, I guess it's full of shit. McVeigh had signed in under his real name at the motel, using an address that matched one on his forged license and the charge sheet at the Perry Police Station. Oh, jeez. Before signing his real name at the motel, McVeigh had used false names for his transactions. However, However, McGowan noted people are so used to signing their own name that when they go to sign a phony name, they almost always go to write and then look up and then look up for a moment as if to remember the new name they want to use. That's what he did. And when he looked up, I started talking to him, and it threw him off. <sighs> yeah, I mean, you could try to take credit for that, McGowan, but... Yeah, I don't think so. I think he's just an idiot. Right. <laughs> After an April 21, 1995 court hearing on the gun charges, but before McVeigh's release, federal agents took him into custody as they continued the investigation into the bombing. Of course, can't let him go. Rather than talk to investigators about the bombing, McVeigh demanded an attorney... Having been tipped off by the arrival of police and helicopters that a bombing suspect was inside, a restless crowd began to gather outside the jail. Damn, they're about to uh, create a modern-day lynching, vigilantes. While McVeigh's request for a bulletproof vest or transport by helicopter were denied, authorities did use a helicopter to transport him from Perry to Oklahoma City. Oh, now he wants a bulletproof vest. Please, so they don't kill me. (laughs) Fuck out of here. Federal agents obtained a warrant to search the house of McVeigh's father, Bill, after which they broke down the door and wired the house with and telephone with listening devices. Okay. FBI investigators used the resultant information gained, along with the fake address McVeigh had been using, to begin their search for the Nichols brothers, Terry and James. On the 21st of April, 95, Terry Nichols learned that he was being hunted and turned himself in. Uh-oh. Investigators discovered incriminating evidence at his home, oh, ammonium nitrate and blasting caps, the electric drill used to drill out the locks at the oh, quarry. My. Books on bomb making, oh, a copy of Hunter, which was a 1989 novel by William Luther Pierce, the founder and chairman of the National Alliance, a white nationalist group, oh, man. and a hand-drawn map of downtown Oklahoma City, oh, on which the Murrah building and the spot where McVeigh's getaway car were, was hidden were marked. Why would, I don't understand why these guys just didn't get... <laughs> why would he still have all that? Especially... Soon as he saw on the TV that it blew up, I would have immediately gone and burned it. All right. Jeez. After a nine-hour interrogation, Terry Nichols was formally held in federal custody until his trial. April 25th, 1995, James Nichols was also arrested, but he was released after 32 days due to lack of evidence. There was nothing there. McVeigh's sister Jennifer was accused of illegally mailing ammunition to McVeigh, but she was granted immunity in exchange for testifying against him. Damn. Dang. A, a Jordanian-American. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? 
No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. A Jordanian-American man traveling from his home in Oklahoma City to visit family in Jordan on April 19, 95, was detained and questioned by the FBI at the airport. Several Arab American groups criticized the FBI for racial profiling <laughs> in the subsequent media coverage for publicizing the man's name. Right. Attorney General Reno denied claims that the federal government relied on racial profiling. While FBI Director Louis J. Free told a press conference that the man was never a suspect and was instead treated as a witness. He's like, he's not a suspect. This guy's a witness. What is he witnessing? Uh, I don't know. <laughs> has no connection with it at all, but he's a witness. Okay. An estimated 646 people were inside the building when the bomb exploded. By the end of the day, 14 adults and six children were confirmed dead, over 100 injured. The toll eventually reached 168 confirmed dead, not including an unmatched left leg oh, that could have belonged to an unidentified 169th victim. Uh, I'm sure it or was. Or could have belonged to any one of the eight victims who had been buried without a left leg. It's true. Okay, I guess, right? Well, geez, eight people got buried without a left leg and they matched it? Oh, my. Most of the deaths resulted from the collapse of the building rather than the bomb blast itself. That makes sense, obviously. Right. Jeez. Those killed included 163 who were in the Alfred P. Murrow building, one person in the Athenian building, one woman in a parking lot across the street, a man and woman in the Oklahoma, the Oklahoma Water Resources building, and a rescue worker struck on the head by debris. Aww. Mm. The victims ranged in age from three months old to 73 years and included three pregnant women. Oh, Was geez. the uh, unborn babies included in that death count? I, I doubt it. Of the dead, 108 worked for the federal government. Drug Enforcement Aid Administration had five. Secret Service had six. Department of Housing and Urban Development, 35. Department of Agriculture, seven. Customs Office, two. Department of Transportation, Federal Highway, 11. General Service Administration, two. Social Security Administration, 40. Eight of the federal government victims were federal law enforcement agents. Ooh. So he really didn't even do out. To, didn't. didn't even set out what he no. did. He, well, you know what I'm talking about. Right. Jeez. Of those law enforcement agents, four were members of the Secret Service, two were members of the Customs Service, one was a member of the Drug Enforcement Administration, and one was a member of the Department of Housing and Urban Development. Six of the victims were U.S. military, two were members of the Army, two were members of the Air Force, and two were members of the Marines. Hmm. The victims also included 19 children of whom 15 were in the America's Kids Daycare Center. Jeez, oh, Pete. I'm surprised it was only that right. that um, amount. It's ridiculous. He was parked right underneath of it. Well, I guess how many kids were in there, I don't know. Right. The bodies were identified at the temporary morgue set up at the scene. A team of 24 identified the victims using full body x-rays, dental examinations, fingerprinting, blood tests, and DNA testing. More than 680 people were injured. Majority of the injuries were abrasions, severe burns, and bone fractures. McVeigh later acknowledged the casualties, saying, I didn't define the rules of engagement in this conflict. The rules, if not written down, are defined by the aggressor. It was brutal. No holds barred. Women and kids were killed at Waco and Ruby Ridge. You put back in the faces exactly what they're giving out. You put back in the government's faces exactly what they're giving out. 
He later stated, I wanted the government to hurt like the people of Waco and Ruby Ridge had. Well, the government don't give a shit. You killed a fraction of government to people. All right, and they don't, they don't care anyway. You Clearly. You could have killed a thousand government guys, and they would have been like, okay. <sighs> this guy's an idiot. At 9.03 a.m., the first of over 1,800 911 calls related to the bombing was received by EMSA, Emergency Medical Services Authority. By that, ta- by that time... Ambulances, police, and firefighters had heard the blast and were already headed to the scene. Of course. I would assume so. Right. Nearby civilians who had also witnessed or heard the blast arrived to assist the victims and emergency workers. Within 23 minutes of the bombing, the State Emergency Operations Center was set up, consisting of representatives from the State Departments of Public Safety, Human Services, Military, Health, and Education. That's fast. Well, when a bomb goes off that you could feel and hear from 55 miles away, I would assume it would be fast. Right. Assisting to SEOC where agencies including the National Weather Service, okay. the Air Force. <laughs> hey, man, we need to know if there's going to be any rain coming in. <laughs> Looking good. Probably, right? Right. I'm sure there was fire, and then, like they need to know right. the wind and all the that. and all that. The Air Force, the Civil Air Patrol, the American Red Cross. Immediate assistance also came from 465 members of the Oklahoma National Guard who arrived within the hour to provide security, and from members of the Department of Civil Emergency Management. Terrence Yeeke and James Ramsey from the Oklahoma City Police Department, were among the first officers to arrive. Several cast and crew members filming the 1996 movie Twister paused filming to... Wow. Really? I didn't know that. Wow. Okay. Several cast and crew members filming for the 1996 movie Twister paused filming to come and help with recovery efforts. That's crazy. Never heard of that before. Oh, shit. Uh, The EMS command post was set up almost immediately following the attack and oversaw triage, treatment, transportation, and decontamination. A simple plan slash objective was established. Treatment and transportation of the injured was to be done as quickly as possible. Supplies and personnel to handle a large number of patients was needed immediately. Dude, just think of the chaos and... Oh, dude. I I would assume it, the only thing that rivals that is 9-11. Plus, you got to get all that heavy machinery in there to move all the rocks. To see if anybody survived underneath oh, and all that. Oh, my goodness. Um, the dead needed to be moved to a temporary morgue until they could be transferred to the coroner's office, and measures for a long-term medical operation needed to be established. The triage center was set up near the Murrah building, and all wounded were directed there. 210 patients were transported from the primary triage center to nearby hospitals within the first couple of hours following the bombing. That's freaking nuts. Freaking nuts. Next thing you know, you're eating breakfast, and then Boom. You're picking up body parts off the road. And all you hear is, like we're in France or something. (laughs) (laughs) That's what it reminds me of, you know? That's that's where shit like that happens. Not the United States of America. Usually like Venezuela or shit like that, right? On that scale? Somewhat. I mean, yeah, it doesn't usually happen in America. It's happened three times. Three times. Crazy. To that effect. Within the first hour... 50 people were like arrested. what seriously three times like something this this magnitude was happened on u.s soil probably pearl harbor this and 9-11 yeah besides hurricanes I'm well like, yeah i'm not talking about that i'm talking about like right people killing other people right yeah i'd have to say right let me think yeah all right yeah within first hour 50 people were rescued from the murrah building Victims were sent to every hospital in the area. The day of the bombing, 150 pe- 153 people were treated at St. Anthony Hospital, eight blocks from the blast. Over 70 people were treated at Presbyterian Hospital. 41 people were treated at University Hospital. 18 people at Children's Hospital. 
Temporary silences were observed at the blast site so that sensitive listening devices capable of detecting human heartbeats could be used to locate survivors. Dude, Dang. that is crazy. In some cases, limbs had to be amputated without anesthetics in order to free those trapped under rubble. Wow. They did this to avoid potential shock to the victims. Dude. Uh, yeah. You're telling me just starting to saw off somebody's arm wouldn't be a shock? Right. Oh, my. I don't know. Like, I don't. like, hey, we're going to get you out of there. I don't even tell you. You're like, what the hell are you doing? I mean, unless you're crushed already, so all that. Are, I don't know. You think they tell them what they're doing? Like, I wouldn't tell them. I'm, I'm sure they would. I think you have to ask, right? Like, we're going to have to cut off your arm in order to get you out of here. Do what you got to do, man. Get me out of here. What? My arm? Leave me be. <laughs> <laughs> oh, jeez, dude. The scene had to be periodically evacuated as the police received tips claiming that other bombs had been planted in the building. Oh, jeez. At 10.28 a.m., rescuers found what they believed to be a second bomb. Some rescue workers refused to leave until police ordered the mandatory evacuation of a four-block area around the site. See, the- shit like that right there. When somebody called in, being a dickhead, and it stopped the rescue, people could have been saved. And Oh, you know how many people that hate the government, too, probably called no, in. I was dude. like, well, there's three other bombs in the building. Uh, I, I wouldn't be so uh, happy to be walking around or Idiots. so uh, happy. Never happy to walk around rubble. Right. Uh, the device was actually determined to be a three-foot-long tow missile used in the training of federal agents and bomb-sniffing dogs. Okay, they couldn't have immediately did them. Although, actually, inert, it had been marked live in order to mislead arms traffickers in a planned law enforcement sting. Oh, jeez, these guys. Okay. I mean, I guess. You got to take every precaution you can, I guess. Half of the building just blew up. On examination of the missile was determined to be inert, and the relief efforts resumed 45 minutes later. The last survivor, a 15-year-old girl found under the base of the collapsed building, was rescued at around 7 p.m. In the days following the blast, over 12,000 people participated in relief and rescue operations. FEMA activated 11 of its urban search and rescue task forces, bringing in 665 rescue workers. One nurse was killed in a rescue attempt after she was hit in the head by debris. 26 other rescues were hospitalized because of various injuries. Jeez. 24 canine units and out-of-state dogs were brought in to search for survivors and bodies in the building debris. In an effort to recover additional bodies, 100 to 350 short tons of rubble were removed from the site each day from April 24th to April 29th. How do they do that without right destroying like bodies or people that are alive? Is well, that ever like a thing? How I many people? The heartbeat thing. They know where uh, they can. Well, that's true. But still, you still got to reserve the bodies. Rescue and recovery efforts were concluded at 12.05 a.m. on May 5th, by which time the bodies of all but three of the victims had been recovered. For safety reasons, the building was initially slated to be demolished shortly afterward. McVeigh's attorney, Stephen Jones, filed a motion to delay the demolition until the defense team could examine the site in preparation for the trial. What do you need to examine? Right. At 7.02 a.m. on May 23rd, more than a month after the bombing, the federal building was demolished. With those three people inside still? I'm assuming. The EMS, the EMS command center remained active and was staffed 24 hours a day until the demolition. The final three bodies to be recovered were those of two credit union employees and a customer. Hmm. Dang, that sucks. Oh, dude, just going to withdraw money and right. withdrew his life. For several days after the building's demolition, trucks hauled away 800 short tons of debris a day from the site. Some of the debris was used as evidence in the conspirators' trial. Incorporated into materi- memorials, donated to local schools, or sold to raise funds for relief efforts. The national humanitarian response was immediate and, in some cases, even overwhelming. 
Large numbers of items such as wheelbarrows, bottled water, helmet lights, knee pads, rain gear, and even football helmets were donated. The sheer quantity of such donations caused logistical and inventory control problems until drop-off centers were set up to accept and sort the goods. The Oklahoma Restaurant Association, which was holding a trade show in the city, assisted rescue workers by providing 15,000 to 20,000 meals over 10 days. Dang. Salvation Army served over 100,000 meals and provided over 100,000 ponchos, gloves, hard hats, and knee pads to rescue workers. Dang. Local residents and those from further afield responded to the request for blood donations. Of the 9,000 units of blood donated, 131 were used. Wow. The rest were stored in blood banks. Well, geez, they got a bunch of blood that they probably needed for other things, so good for them. Jeez, old Peter, huh? 9.45 a.m., Governor Frank Keating declared a state of emergency. Ordered all non-essential workers in the Oklahoma City area to be released from their duties for their very safety. President Bill Clinton learned about the bombing at around 9.30. How the hell does the president only learn about it a half hour later? Right. While he was meeting with Turkish Prime Minister. Oh, geez. <laughs> meeting with right. another country's leader. Excuse me. They're blowing up our buildings. <laughs> These guys. I don't know how to do a Turkish accent, accent but this is how you run your country? <laughs> you let the... The prisoners run the show or whatever? How's it go? Inmates run the asylum? Yeah, jeez. So he was meeting uh, Turkish Prime Minister Tanzu Killer. Chiller. Siller. <laughs> well, he's a killer probably, right. too. Turkey. <laughs> Before addressing the nation, President Clinton considered grounding all planes in Oklahoma City to prevent the bombers from escaping by air. But he's like, eh. Yeah, that would not be good. At 4 p.m., President Clinton declared a federal emergency in Oklahoma City and spoke to the nation. The bombing in Oklahoma City was an attack on innocent children and defenseless citizens. It was an act of cowardice, and it was evil. The United States will not tolerate it, and I will not allow the people of this country to be intimidated by evil cowards. He ordered that flags for all federal buildings be flown at half-staff for 30 days in remembrance of the victims. Four days later, on April 23, 95, Clinton spoke from Oklahoma City. I mean, he was on top of it. No major federal... And they, fo- didn't, even, they didn't even issue a, a federal emergency until 4 o'clock. <clears throat> right. All you had to do was turn on the news and see that a third of a building was gone. Like, yeah, that's a federal emergency. Right. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Mm, that brings on the. No conspirators. We'll get there in part three, don't worry. (laughs) No major federal financial assistance was made available to the survivors of Oklahoma City bombing. Of course not. But the Murrah Fund set up... It was a federal building. Right. But the Murrah Fund set up in the wake of the bombing attracted over 300,000 in federal grants. Over $40 million was donated to the city to aid disaster relief uh, and to compensate the victims. Mm, How much of that actually went to the victims? Funds initially distributed to families who needed it to get back on their feet. And the rest was held in a trust for longer-term medical and psychological needs. By 2005, $18 million of the donations remained. Wow. Well, okay. Some of which was earmarked to provide a college education for each of the 219 children who lost one or both of their parents in the bombing. A committee chaired by Daniel Kurtenbach of Goodwill Industries provided financial assistance to the survivors. International reactions to the bombing varied. President Clinton received many messages of sympathy, including those from Queen Elizabeth, Yasser Arafat of Palestine, 
P.V. Narashima Rao of India. Iran condemned the bombing as an attack on innocent people, but also blamed the government, the government's policies for inciting it. Okay. Well, you know, you know, Iran's going to have that compliment sandwich. Right. right. And like they give a shit about attacks on innocent people. Anyways, I don't, Iran. I don't think they do. Other condolences came from Russia, Canada, Australia, United Nations, European Union, among other nations and organizations. Several countries offered to assist in both the rescue efforts and the investigation. France offered to send a special rescue unit. Israeli Prime Minister Yitka Rabin offered to send agents with anti-terrorist expertise to help in the investigation. President Clinton declined Israel's offer, believing that accepting it would increase anti-Muslim sentiments and endanger Muslim Americans. Hmm. Well, yeah, because, you know, Israelis are going to go in there and just look at all the Palestinians right. and all that stuff. They're like, like no, 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 no. And we found them. <laughs> Here they are. Uh, in the wake of the bombing, the national media focused on the fact that 19 of the victims had been babies and children. Yeah, I mean, you got to get those clicks. Many in the daycare center. At the time of the bombing, there were 100 daycare centers in the United States and 7,900 federal buildings. Okay. Okay. McVeigh later stated that he was unaware of the daycare center oh. when choosing the building as a target. And if he, if he had known... Might have given me pause to switch targets. That's a large amount of collateral damage. <sighs> I mean, I guess I have to believe that since he didn't do it for a freaking florist. Right. I don't think he knew. But how do you not research everything that's in the building? There's right. got to be a daycare center in there. Right. The FBI stated that McVeigh scouted the interior of the building in December 94 and likely knew of the daycare center oh, before no. the bombing. Maybe yeah, you're a liar, Timmy. Right. Yeah, come on, man. April 2010, Joseph Hartzler... The prosecutor at McVeigh's trial questioned how McVeigh could have decided to pass over a prior target building because of a florist shop, but at, but decided to bomb Murrah building and then notice that there's a child daycare center there and there was a credit union there and a social security office. Social security office? How many people are going to be older right. in that office? You know, I mean, come on. Schools across the country were dismissed early and ordered closed. A photograph of firefighter. I mean, that's a little crazy. Right. Yeah, I don't know about that. Right. A photograph of firefighter Chris Fields emerging from the rubble with an infant, Bailey yeah, Allman. Pretty iconic. Right. Who later, who later died in a nearby hospital was reprinted worldwide and became a symbol of the attack. Of course it was. Gotta, gotta take those kids, man. The photo taken by bank employee Charles H. Porter IV won the 96 Pulitzer Prize for spot news photography and appeared on the newspapers and magazines for months following the attack. That should never, you should never win a Pulitzer Prize <sighs> for if, taking a picture of that. If their parents survived. Jeez. Uh, I would immediately took it out. Like, right. no, you're not using my kid as your... Right. Get the hell out of here. Uh, Ren Alman Cock, mother of Bailey Alman, set up the photo. It was very hard to go to the stores because they were in the checkout aisle. Right. It was always there. It was devastating. Everybody had seen my daughter dead. And that's all, that's all she became to them. She was a symbol. She was the girl in the fireman's arm, but she was a real person that got left behind. Exactly. exactly. Ridiculous. I would have, I would have been like, you guys, no, it's not right. happening. Man, jeez, idiots. The images and media reports of children dying terrorized many children who, as demonstrated by later research, showed symptoms of post-traumatic stress disorder. Well, yeah. Just like this mother was just saying, she's going right. to grocery stores and aisles and seeing the little girl dead in the fireman's yard. Where do you think little kids are going? And they're seeing that same exact thing. Jeez. They've never seen nothing like this no. but until now. And now it's all Lord. Right. Children became a primary focus of concern in the mental health response to the bombing, and many bomb-related services were delivered to the community, young and old alike. These services were delivered to public schools of Oklahoma and reached approximately 40,000 students. One of the first organized mental health activities in Oklahoma City was a clinical study of middle and high school students conducted seven weeks after the bombing. 
Well, that study focused on middle and high school students who had no connection or relationship to the victims of the bombing. This study showed that these students, although deeply moved by the event and showing a sense of vulnerability on the matter, had no difficulty with the demands of school or home life, as contrasted to those who were connected to the bombing as the victims. Clearly. Pretty simple study. I mean, you didn't even need a study. <sighs> children were also affected through the loss of parents in the bombing. You think many children lost one or both parents in the blast, with the reported seven children losing their only remaining parent. Uh, I mean, it's common sense stuff there, man. Right. It's going to... Closest effect. Who do you think is going to have more effect on people right. that lost somebody or knew somebody that uh, died, or right. people that had no connection whatsoever? I mean, come on, right. get the hell out of here. That's like saying, that's like saying, who's going to have more connection uh, from nine eleven? Somebody that lost somebody in the buildings, or me? Right. Definitely not me. I just watched it on TV. All right. I know. I knew nobody that was there. Nothing. Or anything like that. I mean, no. that's just stupid. All right. I mean, that's like ridiculous. Children of disaster have been raised by single parents, foster parents, and other family members. Adjusting to the laws has made these children suffer psychologically and emotionally. One orphan who was interviewed of at least 10 orphan children reported sleepless nights and obsession with death. President Clinton stated that after seeing images of babies being pulled from the wreckage, he was beyond angry and wanted to put his fist through the television. Clinton and his wife requested that aides talk to child care specialists about how to communicate with the children regarding the bombing. President Clinton spoke to the nation three days after the bombing, saying, I don't want our children to believe something terrible about life and the future and the future and grown-ups in general because of this awful thing. Most adults are good people who want to protect our children in their childhood, and we are going to get through this, except for my wife. Right. On April 22nd, 95, the Clinton spoke in the White House with over 40 federal agency employees and their children, and in a live nationwide television and radio broadcast addressed their concerns. This is when the grooming of the kids start coming along, where where uh, the government knows more about your children than parents do. Right. Mm. Hundreds of new trucks and members of the press arrived at the site to cover the story. The press immediately noticed that the bombing took place on the second anniversary of the Waco incident. Many initial news stories hypothesized, hypothesized right, the attack and had been undertaken by Islamic terrorists, such as those who had been masterminded the 1993 World Trade Center. Some media reported that investigators wanted to question men of Middle Eastern appearance. Hamzi Maghrabi, chairman of the American Arab Anti-Discrimination Committee, blamed the media for harassment of Muslims and Arabs that took place after the bombing. As the rescue <laughs> effort wound down, the media interest shifted to the investigation, arrests, and trials of Timothy McVeigh and Terry Nichols, and on the search for the additional suspect named John Doe Number 2. Several witnesses claimed to have seen a second suspect who did not resemble Nichols with McVeigh. Uh, those who expressed sympathy for McVeigh typically described his deed as an act of war, mm. as in case of Gore Vidal's essay, The Meaning of Timothy McVeigh. I don't know about an act of war, but... I mean, if it was any other... somebody from another nation, we would have invaded them and took them out. If it was the actual country doing it, yeah, but if it was somebody from... 9-11 another... supposedly wasn't the country, it was just a group. Right. Uh, well, That's no. pretty much what these guys are. Yeah, we didn't, we didn't attack... Uh, Afghanistan, because of the group we attacked Afghanistan for uh, other reasons. Well, we know why, but I'm saying. And so Iraq. Kind of was an act of war. I guess. <sighs> yeah. Hmm. That's going to do it for part two. Told you it wasn't going to be uh, a fun one to do. These aren't fun like um, the Wild West ones where, <laughs> you know, <laughs> stuff is like, I mean, history all can't be fun and games, man. It's true. Can't be riding around on horses stealing lanterns from trains. 
<laughs> leaving the trail behind you um yeah that's gonna do it for part two part three will be um just wait till we get to uh ted bundy and all those guys well i mean that's different uh part three is gonna be the investigation and the subsequent trials of both mcveigh and nichols as well as um kind of the aftermath and laws and stuff put in place to prevent this happening again and um other stuff relating to the bombing so that's where we're gonna leave this one in a sense of uh doom and gloom doom and gloom but uh if you haven't just make sure you go check out uh part one the backgrounds of both of these guys because this will give you a little bit more of an idea of why they did this All right and then uh, make sure to come back for part three next week for the trials and stuff. If you are interested in history, other history, we do another podcast called um, Battles of the American Civil War, where obviously, as the name suggests, we go from first battle of the Civil War all the way up to the second battle. We are currently in October of 1861, so still early on in the war, about 11, 12 episodes in. And, um, yeah, we're working our way battle by battle, um, skirmish by skirmish, big or small, we cover them all. That's a shitty tagline. <laughs> Whatever. Um, yeah, so that's over there. Uh, by millions of, right. Uh, <laughs> right. Of Everything. Companies. Battles of the American Civil War over there. We'll be back next week for part three of the Oklahoma City bombing. We are the Mouth of Michiganders. With bang, dang. 